You're listening to Power Athlete Radio, a podcast dedicated to empowering your performance every damn day. Join former NFL pro and Power Athlete founder John Wellborn as he dissects the greatest minds in strength, conditioning, and more. So whether your goal is to be the hammer, destroy mediocrity, or simply move the dirt, you've come to the right place. Now with the warm-up done, let the gains begin. Welcome to the 2023 year interview for Power Athlete Radio. This is an interesting one, seeing as it's probably the first time I've ever done just a solo podcast with me and a camera. It's always been with guests or, you know, Chris or Luke or whoever was here interviewing me for these reviews. So kind of a interesting breakthrough and a little odd. I've seen Mark Ripto and I've seen a bunch of people do this. And while it never seemed good or bad, it seemed like a function of the state of where we are. So 2023 has been an interesting year to say the least, a tumultuous year, uh, a lot of changes, um, but we've had some incredible high points at Power Athlete. Obviously, one of them being Power Athlete Radio, um, being able to go to the Olympia, get Jim Wendler on, um, you know, uh, having Shanji and Victor and the guys from Six Blades on. Uh, I did two epic podcasts with Mark Ripto, who was always a good guest. And I was also featured on Mike Sorelli's Everyday Warrior podcast as a, I guess you could say, a repeat guest uh, co-host which allowed me to experience and access some really interesting people, one of which was Dr. Dan Ingle, which we'll get into a little bit later. I also traveled up to Montana, did Andy Stump's podcast, Cleared Hot, and just had a interesting travels, a fun time reconnecting, and just getting to talk about stuff that's a little outside what I normally talk about. Normally when we interview people, there's an agenda, I hate to say it, but there's definitely things that I'm looking to get out of the guest for when I'm a guest, it's mainly just, hey, what are we going to talk about? And personally, I really like when I have when I go on people's podcasts where they give me, hey, these are the things that I want to discuss. This is what I'm going. They kind of give me a little bit of a outline. Andy did not do that. Andy just said, hey, let's turn on the mic and see what happens, which I think was very circa 2016, 2017 for me, for those of you that have listened to the podcast in the past. But uh, we ended up having a great one, um, ended up launching Dragon Slayer. Uh, which is one of the training programs on Power Athlete, the one that's designed for wrestling and jiu-jitsu, and the one that I crafted for Victor Hugo, uh, Philippe Costa, and Arash Safani. So, where to, where to start? Um, if you listen to podcasts in the past, you know that at the end of last year, at the end of 2022, my daughter was attacked by a neighbor's dog and had a hell of an ordeal um, where, you know, 130-pound Antolian Shepherd took her down And while (laughs) I Googled this after the fact, the dogs killed a lot of people. Um, That little girl fought his ass off and really credited her exposure to jujitsu as, you know, being able to, you know, get her chin down, kick and fight and battle it off and ended up surviving that. And while the scars are healing, we continued this journey in doing jujitsu together, um, which ended up culminating in me getting a blue belt last week. And she's about to get promoted to her next belt. But I asked her coach to kind of hold off a little bit because I want her to compete this year. Um, We're trying to find a a little tournament for her in December, maybe in January, and then she can get promoted. I thought it'd be better for her to compete as a white belt. For me, I think, um, uh, you know, I was very happy being a white belt. Um, Missed a bunch of promotions just because of work and all that. Um, But 
you know, Lovato was in town for his who's number one fight and um, taught a seminar. And after, you know, with Lovato there and, and um, Philippe and Victor and Shanji, they pulled out a blue belt and kind of promoted me. And Shanji made a funny comment where he's like, hey, we got to promote you. We can't have you sharking people as a white belt anymore. So I felt that was a pretty good tip of the hat, especially after training for almost 14, 15 months. Um, I don't know if that's quick. I don't know if it's slow. Um, I definitely came into jujitsu with a little bit of a skill set. haven't played in the NFL for a long time. And also fairly athletic in the ability to pick things up. And also having the exposure of training Victor and Fleep and the guys. And then also going and training with them. Um, I think uh, definitely sped up whatever learning process is happening there. So it's been uh, an interesting piece. And then, you know, as that kind of got on and, you know, we went out and we did the Olympia, uh, we ended up doing number two with Jim Wendler, which now I feel almost obligated, which I think I'm going to end up doing number three. So I got hit up probably about two weeks ago for Thanksgiving to go out to Ohio to do Dave Tate's podcast, you know, at the table, um, which has turned out to be a pretty good series that he's been doing. He's interviewed a lot of high class, really quality individuals and just, um, you know, a lot of kind of pillars within the strength and had some amazing conversations. So I was honored that he wanted me to come out there. If I'm in Ohio, it would feel disingenuous to not reach out and try to do a series three or a a third part with Jim Wendler. This time I'd be doing it solo with Jim without, you know, my former co-host Chris McQuilkin there. So I'm pretty excited for that. We interrupt this episode with a shameless self-promotion. Are you pushing through performance roadblocks caused by pain or janky movement mechanics? Knock the rust off with our movement health courses used by thousands of athletes worldwide from average shows to MVPs. Our courses give you the tools to assess and fix yourself so you can get back to break-in necks and cash in checks. Not convinced? Get a taste of how our courses can help you by enrolling in a free sample today. Head to PowerAthleteHQ.com and search courses from the menu. Now back to the show. Uh, the Dave Tate Podcast. Um, I'm interested to get a list of questions or more importantly, like the agenda. What does he want to execute? What does he want to talk about? You know, I have uh, two pretty interesting journeys, obviously, you know, going to college, you know, and then getting a, you know, play a decade in the NFL. And then, you know, the 10 plus years since, you know, I worked for CrossFit, traveled and taught seminars, what we've done for Power Athlete. And really this podcast has been a learning experience and a hell of a journey. So I look at it almost like three different multiple lifetimes. So I'm excited to hear what he has to say and maybe potentially maybe get a third Jim Wendler. And then also what I'd love to do, which he seemed up for is flip the script and turn on the cameras and do a power athlete radio on location in London, Ohio. So we'll hopefully film a episode of power athlete radio there. And that way I can turn the tables and ask him a lot of questions just because, um, you know, he, Dave is a, not only a wealth of information has a high, you know, like a kick-ass, uh, you know, performance equipment, you know, kind of a elite FTS. You haven't heard of elite FTS. You've obviously not been lifting weights or on the internet. And, he has some amazing stories of his tumultuous relationship with Louis Simmons, you know, who's since passed and uh, I'm excited to interview him. But on this year in review, not only talking about power athlete in the direction 
Um, we had an amazing capstone event at the end of the year for our Power Athlete Collective with all of our Power Athlete certified coaches. So for those of you guys who are not aware, we don't just do podcasts and programming, which obviously you can find at powerathletehq.com slash training. We also certify coaches here and have an education curriculum that I think is as good as anything I've seen on the market in terms of preparing people for what they need to train athletes immediately. So when you look at the NSCA and a lot of these certifications, they're very agnostic of direction. Here's all the information, figure out your own path. Power Athlete threw a snake in the ground, used core principles that I've used within my training with compensatory acceleration, movement, barbells, all the stuff that I've done to not only train people for college scholarships, Olympic gold medals, and, you know, careers in professional sports, and then also tip of the spear, you know, door kickers from, uh, you know, Naval Special Warfare, brought all that, kind of packaged it up and offered it to people in a ready-made deal. So right now, uh, part of my journey in November and December is going back and doing an AAR on all of our education and rewriting and adding some new courses, one of which is called the mindset of a professional football player or mindset of an NFL player. I'm still working with the title, but it's basically the trials and tribulations and the lessons that I learned that allowed me to prepare and be successful as an NFL player. And we'll use this podcast to interview um, some really high level people, not only NFL players, but other people, you know, like Salo Albero and Shanji and, you know, Lovato and some of the guys that we've worked with on the side of BJJ, other professional athletes and Olympic athletes and try to bring these guys together, hear their origin story, understand the mindset and create this course, which I, I'm really excited for. Um, you know, there's this misconception on the internet that there's some secret training program that you can lock into at a certain age and that'll allow you to have great athletic success. Uh, we've got as close to that cheat code as possible, you know, having people start young on bedrock and then moving into something like field strong where, you know, we're providing them really just high level advanced training, um, you know, when they need it in the beginning, it's very basic and then it progresses on. And, the missing piece, and I know, you know, people teach breath and they teach all this, a little bit of everything, but what I really want to focus on is the mindset aspect of like, if the training's taken care of, what are you doing to allow yourself to be successful? And uh, there's a um, kind of a misconception, I think, where, you know, uh, athletes tough or they're not tough or this guy and this, I really think that toughness and mental toughness especially, is just the accumulation of a whole lot of not quitting. There's a whole bunch of little pieces that start kind of start small and progress and progress and progress. And so what I want to do is show these examples, bring people along, and then put work in place for people to start developing a little bit of this mindset to be successful. So um, that's something I've been hammering on. The other one is we're working on a nutrition course uh, with two of our PhDs, actually three of our PhDs. Uh, that are in the Power Athlete Coaches Collective. So we've come together and we're going to do a, you know two nutrition courses. One is kind of the layman and then the other one's for more of the clinician or a little bit higher level. So we've been working on those. So I'm excited to really push a ton of education in 2024. Um, go through, I got to refilm and revamp a bunch of stuff in the, uh, um, in the methodology. Uh, rework the book. So we got some interesting pieces for that. And then obviously continue to do Power Athlete Radio and engage some of the smartest, best people on the planet uh, for 2024. You know, the, uh, the days of just having somebody on to tell a cool story have kind of passed. Uh, for me, 
I want to have amazing conversations with people that are doing things that are so far outside the realm of what I consider to be an expert for me um, that it forces me out to learn. Um, like I said earlier, we were I was invited to be a co-host on Mike Sorelli's Everyday Warrior podcast. We had a guy there um, come on about psychedelics, Dr. Dan Engel, who kind of wrote the book on you know psychedelics and PTSD and really just fixing a lot of these you know, issues that people are going into from depression and suicide and kind of using plant-based medicine in this. And he was really the guy that wrote the book on it. So having him on was impactful. After we had him on, uh, we went and we got lunch and, um, you know, the question was posed, what do you think about ayahuasca? What do you think about this and this and this? And I just don't have any practical knowledge, um, you know, firsthand, but I have a ton of stories by guys like George Bryant, who we had on the podcast earlier this year. If you guys don't know George, um, probably one of the sharpest marketing minds I've ever been exposed to and one of the most uh, amazing people I've ever been exposed to. Um, you know, from the first time I met George, I felt like we'd been friends for forever and somebody that I wanted to keep as close as possible. And, uh, you know, he's going through, you know, life and, you know, kicking ass in every which way. And I recently just went out and presented with him at his uh, George Bryant's Lighthouse event, which is a marketing lighthouse kind of develop people and they asked me to come and speak on rhetoric more importantly how you weave ethos pathos and logos into your pitch within your you know creating your brand and it's something that i had never done i mean obviously i did it in college and it's something that's been a a hobby of mine in terms of the reading and really just an approach because it was something that was so impactful for me for so long and still is so i mean even if you go to my instagram profile or my twitter profile it still lists myself as a rhetorician so to be able to go in and teach a little bit of the classics to these individuals and talk to them about, you know, running your business and creating your ethos. This episode of Power Athlete Radio is powered by Train Heroic, the most immersive strength training app experience on the market. We've built an online training business by partnering with Train Heroic to deliver all of our world-class training programs like Jack Street, Hammer, Field Strong, and Grindstone. To learn which Power Athlete training program best suits your goals, head to powerathletehq.com training. And if you're a coach looking to build a business with the best training tech in the business, head to trainheroic.com slash powerathletehq. And now back to the show. Uh, I got a chance to get up and speak for almost an hour and then mentor and talk to a lot of people about creating their ethos and understanding their story and how does the origin story fit in and how does this piece fit within the model of branding? Because people like to do business with brands that they trust. And when something's disingenuous and something's just not right, why is that? Is it because the stories don't line up? Is it because, you know, the origin story is, is broken and it doesn't fit within your ethos? So helping those guys with it was really fun. But as I progress into this, it probably looks like another course, um, but uh, I'm excited for this education piece. I'm really excited to push this. Um, so... Definitely going to do the the uh, uh, part three for Wendler. Um, I'm going to pull out some clips of some podcasts that we've done here in 2023. Now, I love every podcast that we've done in 2023, so I couldn't include them all. But I'm going to include some some burners here. One is going to be Jim Wendler's uh, you know conversation where we're sitting. Let me set the stage a little bit. It's myself, Jim Wendler, Chris McQuilkin, uh, and we're sitting around in this speakeasy in Columbus, Ohio. So we found this pizza joint that had a downstairs hidden bar 
um, you know, through one of Chris's buddies uh, knew about it. So we rented it out and we ended up doing part one there. And then we went back last year for part two. But there's a pretty funny story. Um, Jim's a huge fan of college football. And uh, I, you know, obviously, as you guys know, I took a bunch of trips. One of the trips I took to Nebraska, and I'm telling Jim a story about, uh, you know, on my recruiting trip, you know, I'm a high school senior. We're sitting at some bar, you know, the guys in Nebraska basically wore their Letterman's jackets everywhere, which was like instant access. You know, this is pre-social media days by pretty far, so nobody got any pictures. But we ended up going to this bar, which they do, and take recruits out for drinking, which you guys are not surprised. And it ended up with us outside in the street um, doing one-on-one pass pro against some of their uh, red shirts. So I was the only offensive lineman um, uh, recruit that weekend. So all the starters took me out. And so we're sitting there drinking, and some of the young guys are there, and the defense guys are talking shit. And so we ended up doing some one-on-one pass pro out on the street. And surprisingly, I didn't do that bad. So I knew, man, man, those guys were pretty pumped on it. So that was a pretty good story to relive. Uh, anytime I get an opportunity to sit with Jim, I feel like I'm sitting with, you know, with a former teammate. Uh, he is not only, he's packed full of stories, he's funny, he's got an interesting perspective, he's got an ironic sense of humor. Um, and, you know, he lives and dies for what he does, which is not only writing his books, 531, but also coaching these young football players to be the best version of himself. I mean, he, uh, he is definitely the Howard Hughes of fitness and strength training. Uh, he's kind of a, a shut in, doesn't like a lot of people getting him out of the house. I usually have to call his wife and negotiate something to get her out there. But, uh, every time he shows up, he's always stoked for it so much so that, uh, last time I saw him, or I think it was two times ago, I saw him, I went to go shake his hand and he like, was like, we don't shake, we hug. And, uh, it was, it was pretty cool to see the vulnerability of a guy like Jim Wendler. And, you know, it's one of those things that have forced me to be more vulnerable. Okay, if Jim Wendler can be a hugger and can tear up over these things, I guess I can too, and it's okay for that. So um, excited for a part three for Jim. So if you guys want to check that podcast out, it's 698, and we'll show the clip. When I went on there, it was Joel Wilkes was their was fucking guard? right guard. Yeah. And then it was. Uh, How do I know that? I, I don't even know my wife's birthday. Uh, it was sent. I can the, tell you everyone. Center, and then the other guy was. You think uh, I'm lying too? Uh, Sorry. Fuck. Uh, the the other tackle began with an I. And uh, when I went on my trip, it was fucking awesome. First of all, we went to the Elks Club for dinner, where they had crack crab and lobster, which fucking blew my mind. And then we in went Nebraska. To, yeah. At Nebraska, they Nebraska flew in room. cracked crab and lobster and steaks to the Elks Club for us our dinner. And then we went to a movie. They walked in. With their Letterman's jackets, walked behind, grabbed all the candy. We went and sat down, and they signed autographs for fucking 40 minutes before they started the movie. And then they said, start this bitch. It was like, I have never in my life Do seen... Do you remember the movie? What was no, it? Oh, I can't remember the movie. What year is this? Uh, 1994. 19, the greatest movie year of all time. I can't remember the movie. That Pulp Fiction, right? It was, it was right? Joel... Uh, Dumb and Dumb. 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 Yeah, Forrest Gump. It was uh, Joel Shawshanks. Wilkes. No, Shawshank. Yeah, sorry. It was Joel. No, I'm sorry. Just... we've already had this podcast. So <laughs> don't worry about it. I, I I would have to go back and look at their. You names. know what? I, it's uh, both Zanuck brothers. Yeah, playing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. fucking Zanuck brothers. Yeah, and then uh, I'm trying to remember who the defensive tackle was. The black um, shirts. Nebraska uh, defense. Uh, Place whoever, at the table. Uh, it was. Um, it wasn't Grant Winstrom. But whoever the defensive tackle I think the program was, was tackle the, or the end. And then his brother was the defensive end. He was a freshman. I can't remember what we had drinks at this bar and went outside and we did one on one pass pro in the street. 
I, I am, was a fucking senior in high school, and they were like, "Well, born, let's see what you fucking got." Well, we, we don't tell drinks. me you laid down in the street like the program. <laughs> program. No, no, we went they outside, took that out of the movie outside the bar you know in that? Lincoln, that Nebraska, and one of the guys was was uh, what what, he was what time a, of year was this? Uh, oh, uh, fucking winter, <laughs> right? So we go outside. Uh, and dude, I'm gonna tell you another thing that's gonna make you laugh. But uh, so we go outside, and uh, they were like, we went out, and they were like, yeah, no, this is our fucking guy. And they were like, well, born, let's do some one-on-one pass pro. So we went outside the bar with one of their fucking true freshmen who was a red shirt, and he ended up being, God, I can't remember his fucking name. Um, and we ended up doing one-on-one pass pro. And the hilarious part was my host. And this is gonna, this is so embarrassing. He wore a fucking quick belt like this. And uh, ever since then, I've fucking worn a belt like this every fucking day of my life. This is what he was wearing. He was wearing a quick belt, and it was like one of those football belts, you know, like with the yeah, slide yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. the football belts. So I saw him wearing it. He just had that on his jeans, and I was like, oh, this is genius. So I wore those for years, and I still have them, and I still wear these fucking quick belts because of that. And I saw it, and I was like, because at that point, I was like, a so belt buckle you're ready like, to pass pro or play it. So I went out time? to fucking do pass pro, Lincoln, Nebraska, in the middle, and I got to do it, and I actually did all right. Thanks to Jim Wendler, and we will see you hopefully in 2024. The next one's podcast 709 with my good friend and uh, mentor and mentee, uh, Victor Hugo. So as you guys know from this podcast, uh, really the origins of the Dragon Slayer program come from uh, really just a chance meeting with Shanji Hibero. And, um, you know, like I said, I, I took Jamie up to go do jujitsu and up meeting this guy. He took, he tells somebody, he's like, hey, this NFL guy, former NFL player's daughter's training here. Uh, mentions my name, and the guy who's in the strength conditioning world says to him, yeah, that dude played in the NFL, but that isn't necessarily what people know him for, <clears throat> and then talked about power athlete. So he asked me to go out for a coffee and says, hey, I have a, you know, I have a project I need help with. I have some young fighters that are, you know, uh, that are lacking. They need some strength conditioning. They need a little bit of power athlete magic, and I agreed to work with them. So he brought them over, and I figured – they are, you know, professional athletes are going to be pretty well sorted. I'm just going to throw them into the group and we'll just be, you know, pick up some new training partners. That first day when they walked in, I was completely floored by one, um, you know, how far away would I understand from a model of strength conditioning these individuals were just because they'd never been exposed to it. Um, their idea of strength conditioning was probably the, you know, the push-ups or whatever that they were doing in the warm-ups and different pieces but really putting them into a structured training program of consistency, you know, linear progression, using compensatory acceleration, a lot of the funky, cool stuff that we've learned within Triphasic and Caldeets. And watching these individuals go into that program, consistently train with incredible effort, because that's the one thing I will say about um, the Dragon Slayer kids that I've been training. They are hard workers and they have a vision to be great. So you can see this with professional athletes. Everybody does it great the first day, even the second day or the third day. But when all of a sudden you're three, four, five months in and you're banged up and it's cold and it's shitty and they still come in with a smile, still turn on the music and still get after it, that's how you know. So the consistency factor has been incredible for these kids. They haven't missed a single workout um, that wasn't kind of pre-planned within their own training model. Like, hey, I'm going to be fighting in Houston this week on a Friday. I can't be there on Friday. So, I mean, these guys have just not missed a single workout. And the results are there. Um, you know, the injuries, the conditioning, the strength. I mean, just the change within them has been pretty amazing. So I had Victor on the podcast for 709. And it was 
the first time that we had ever sat down like this and I got a chance to pick into the origin story. So as you guys know, or maybe you don't know, I love origin stories. I want to know where people came from. I want to know what made them tick. I want to know what makes them great. Um, you know, as you go through life, you're always going to hear the successes and the failures, but I'm interested in what the story was getting there. Uh, you know, whenever I watch a movie, I always want to know, you know, like I always want to see the flashbacks where, you know, all of a sudden the, you know, the gangsters in the shootout or he's going to do this. And then all of a sudden it, you know, they have a, a little bit of dream and all of a sudden it's him as a little kid running down the street and you see where it all started. And that origin story, I believe is so important because it allows us to know where we're going. I mean, if we don't know where we started, do we know, really know where we're going? The age old, if, uh, um, you know, if the wind isn't favorable, any port we sail to is a, is a good port. So, um, you have to know where you're going. And that was one of the pieces that I pulled from that, like the lessons of antiquity talk I did for or the collective two years ago. And also for George Bryan is you got to have a North star. You got to know where you're going. And a lot of that North star comes from the ethos and more importantly, the origin story where you came from. <clears throat> so we're going to cut and we're going to get in a little bit into Victor Hugo's origin story and where this, you know, small town kid from Florida, Laza got into jujitsu and has become one of the top ultras in the world. And, uh, not only, an amazing athlete, an incredible uh, jiu-jitsu player, but also uh, an incredible human being, a really good friend, and um, somebody that I'm proud to see, you know, mature into the man that I know he can be. He already is. He's 26. I mean, at that point, I already played multiple years in the NFL, made a ton of dumb decisions, and been a complete fucking rockhead. So I try to provide the mentorship that I didn't necessarily get or would have taken by being like, hey, dude, I've been here before. Slow down. Don't make dumb decisions. This is what we do. And so uh, I think he's got a pretty good head on his shoulder. So I'm excited for you guys to pick this piece of the podcast. The first match I did pretty well. I think I won like 70-0. Like I had a couple of positions that I was really confident. I just kept doing them over and over. Like I would sweep the guy to mount. The guy would, def the guy would defend mount. I would play in guard and do the same thing. I did the same thing like four times. So I got a lot of points. But on the finals, I actually have a pretty funny story. Uh... I was finding this kid, he was kind of like double my size, and he was a little bit older. He was like, just like humongous, huge. Uh, and he stacked past me. He was like stack passing. And I was pretty flexible, I still am. So I was kind of comfortable, but I was starting to like, you know, like get a little anxious, like, because there was a lot of weight, the torment, everything going on. And I heard this voice in the back of my mind, if you're not feeling right, just ask for a break. And I, I, I swear that it sounded just like my coach's voice. So I look at the referee and I make like a pause uh, sign. Yeah. And then he breaks us, you know, and then he, we stand up and I breathe. And I'm like, I'm ready to go. Let's go. And he's like, nobody, you just tapped. That's like, you can't ask for a break like any moment. <laughs> that's a tap. So that's how I lost my first tournament. And you can already see going back like to this school, everyone's like making fun of me. They're not being me, but just like, <laughs> Yeah, dude, what happened? What's this? Like, why did you just wear a break? There's no breaks, and then that's how my first tournament went. You know, oh. I won one, I lost one, but lost in a funny way. Well, the stack pass is vicious, dude, and the guy was big, you know. And yeah. I, 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 I'm telling you, man, to this day, I Are heard that voice. I, I heard that voice. If you know, maybe because it was three matches, maybe it was someone one coaching someone else. Sure, but you know, on the opportunity, for sure, I thought it was me. So that's um, how the first match, no, second uh, match. In. One time we were training years ago, and um, I had this kind of like benchmark workout um, to know that I was ready to go back for the NFL, and it was uh, basically five sets, 
uh, five back squats at 455, five bench presses at 405. And I would try, I would basically do five sets of five of each, just go back and forth, back and forth. And I had to do it in sub 10 minutes. And, uh, somewhere like on set four, I swear to God, somebody tapped me on the shoulder and asked to work in. And I like turned my head and I was like, shit, no, you know, like shaking my head. And like later on, like the dude I was training with was like, what were you looking at? I was like, well, dude, somebody kept tapping me on the shoulder, telling me they were ready to work in. <laughs> and so the joke became that uh, I was in such a zone. Jesus Christ was tapping on my shoulder to work in. <laughs> and I told Jesus to kick rocks. So I, uh, I definitely know that there's been voices in my head before. Yeah. So 10 months in, you do your first competition. Mm-hmm. You kind of get bit by the bug a little bit more. Yeah. And you start training every, you know, training, training, training. Yeah, because the way that works also on those divisions is whenever you're 14 and 15, whenever I did my first competition, I was 15, you're competing with kids 13, 14, 15. Mm-hmm. So if you're 15, you kind of have like an edge on like a 13 year old kid, you know, you're facing kids that are smaller and all that. So whenever the year, uh, a new year starts, now I'm juvenile. So now I'm going to be the youngest of the division. So I'm, I'm facing kids that are 17. Mm-hmm. So then what I started doing is, I knew that that was coming. I started training a little bit more. So that's when, like, I'm telling you, like, I told you about my mom. Mm-hmm. Like, whenever I had, like, school breaks, I would spend, like, four time, like four trainings a day, five trainings a day. And no lifting or anything, just, like, jiu-jitsu, 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 jiu-jitsu just, like, working a skill. And I was pretty excited to actually also start competing. So I started competing as a white belt, 16 years old. And I think that's one of the years that I mostly compete. Because on my, on my city, I have a lot of tournaments, like, mm-hmm. every week, every weekend. So just like starting jumping in these competitions, won some. Actually, like on that year, I lost all my tournaments besides the last one. Like I, I, I took like nine or eight silver medals. What? Um, and the joke on the school was like, when does the gold come in, dude? <laughs> <laughs> You're tapping people out. Um, is it like that in uh, all through Brazil with uh, like like not just Fortaleza, but like all tournaments? Over, yeah, tournaments. Yes, a lot of local tournaments because that's also a way of making money, right? Like if you organize tournament, you can make some money. So some guys are just trying to make money. They organize those tournaments. The community that get, gets really excited about it. And that's also sometimes something that blinds some people. Like let's say you like you win all the local tournaments. Maybe you don't want to go to Sao Paulo to compete because there's stuff does there. And now you lose your your hype a little bit. So there's a lot of tough people that just compete in these local tournaments, and that becomes kind of like a niche. You know? Yeah, we call that uh, big fish, small bowl. Exactly. You know, mo- lots of that. Yeah, yeah, most people like being big fishes in the small bowl. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, and it's pretty competitive, you know, like cup competitions. But I think what's what was important for me was just like getting momentum of these local ones and state ones, and then start like going brazil you know like competing like different tournaments in brazil so what um what motivated you to basically i mean you could have just stayed in florida lazo been the big fish in the small pond but like what forced you to go out into brazil and start traveling around and going and doing all the tournaments i had a couple guys on my school that they had that vision too they're like hey man like you're starting to win dude you're young like but you have to go outside and compete like that's where the challenge is like once you start winning state like there's a whole like world out there like sao paulo has really tough dudes two dudes and that's where the big tournaments are you should go one day and i actually travel with a couple of friends whenever i was 16 to sao paulo which is like three thousand miles for fortaleza we flew there me and three dudes my dad's uh, my parents let me you know like we spent like five days training there and like not training just the competition it was a world but usually you have different federations Mm-hmm. The main ones, the one that I just fought, IBJJF, but other federations in Brazil, they do the Worlds. There is another one that is not the IBJJF, but the, the level is pretty high because a lot of people in, in Brazil, they go to that one, and it's also in Sao Paulo, some people for Rio come in. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, I don't know, like a G League 
like kind of world, like one division below, but still pretty tough. So I, that was my first tournament out of the the state, and I really liked it, man. Like travel, you know, like be with friends. You eating different stuff, even though it's like the same country is like three thousand miles. So you have access to different food. You like meet some legends. You see some guys fighting, and then I, I just enjoy it. And I think that that was very exciting, you know, for someone to never competed in any sport to be like traveling and like competing. It was just like everything new, so I really enjoyed that feeling. Where did um, you know? So your kind of your tag and what people refer to you on this is this big man flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, where did all this start? Um, you know, I mean the the one thing that I keep hearing over and over again is that you know Victor Hugo's jujitsu he moves like a little dude, but he's six five, six four, and he's mm-hmm. a big guy, and he's and he's a but he's able to move in such a way that's very similar to like how the little guys move. So where did that whole thing come from? Well, whenever I was like maybe four years into jiu-jitsu, you know, like three years, I was very into watching the matches. And for my size, I kind of already knew like with division on the dub, if I became a black belt one day, if I competed a black belt, I'll be ultra heavy, I'll be the heavyweights because it's noticeable. My dad is 6'2", 6'55", so I'm like, I'm going to be a big dude. So even though it's not happening tomorrow, I'm going to start watching this division and see like how the guys play. Man, it was so boring. Just like standing, pushing around. You know, like, I'm not against, like, standing and, like, but uh, but uh, I want to see something exciting. Like, if you're standing, at least be athletic, level changing, double, do something. Like, it was just, like, gripping, strength, and just pushing each other around. It looked man. more like a sumo match. So, I'm like, yeah. man, I'm a big dude right now. I'm not, like, as big as those guys, but I don't want to be that boring whenever I'm old. Like, why can't these guys, like, do stuff that they like always doing work? So, that's kind of, like, what got me going. And then I think it's just, like, how do you say it? just stick into my mind and go like stronger and stronger throughout the years like that concept you know and as i progressed to pearl belt blue belt that that, that was that, that, that that's mainly what made me stand out between the others like i'll be more dynamic than the others and i think it was just like a smarter way like some dudes they're like seeing this guy he's super strong very good uh isometric strength mm-hmm. and then they'll be thinking oh i have to be stronger to him and do more isom- more be more isometric to him the way that i would think is like He's probably slow, but you're not like moving quick. So like that's how like flexibility and movement. Yeah, like what if I'm flexible? You know, if you can move it faster than him, that, those are two things that he doesn't show like in competition. So maybe that's the way to beat him. And I think that started like you know, playing on my mind. I, I think like throughout the years, Ultra Heavy had his the the guys that are like athletic and all that. I'm not talking about all of them, but there are a couple of them that who, they used to do the same thing. Who who did you watch? I really like to watch Bushesha fighting because he's pretty athletic and dynamic, you know. And then the lighter divisions, there was like Leandro Lowe, he moved really well. Yeah, and then, you know, just something fun to watch. Like, why why are people watching football? Because of the athleticism. You see guys jumping over each other, you see guys like yeah. running through each other. So I think that, like, why not make it fun, you know? Like, if you're doing that, if you're at the highest level, like, I think it should be fun. So that's why my first idea, you know. And I think you just, I, I just thought it was actually. As I got old, as I, as I got older, I was like, "Oh, this is actually a good strategy. Like, this is something I should like push." And then the big me flow name came with whenever me and Change was hanging out. He mm-hmm. said that, and I was like, "Oh, that's perfect. That's mm-hmm. everything that that I, that I have in mind, you know." So, um, you know, the jujitsu's improving. You're kind of becoming. Uh, just getting notoriety, and then at age what, seventeen, eighteen. You decided to come to America to compete in worlds, and yeah, I mean, I didn't decide it happened by accident, but yeah. 
whenever I was 17, that was the first time that I competed under IBJJF, is the biggest federation of the sport, right? Mm -hmm. So that was the first time that I had a chance to compete uh, going to Sao Paulo. That's where they have the Brazilian Nationals that I just competed as a black belt. I went as a blue belt and I won. That was the biggest tournament I ever won. And it's a big deal because I don't think for my for my my state, maybe like 10 guys went, they all lost in the one maybe one 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 in the lighter division and i won the heavier division so that's when i was like oh shit this is this is awesome i can i have a good level to compete against those guys so maybe i want to compete more but then that's the age that i want to also like start looking for college and stuff so my family they're like hey man the jiu-jitsu thing is good like we see it helps you but whenever you're 18 you need to find a college you know job we're not hating on like your career or anything but that's like you know how to say too volatile like it can happen today, but it can happen again. You know, like um, yeah, it's um, risky. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. It's risk. Like, 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 there's not a lot of future in it. Yeah, exactly. And like, they're they're seeing some guys that are older than me that they went to São Paulo, they tried to leave after Jiu-Jitsu, they came back, they didn't make any money, so they're like, man, like it's cute and all, but I think you need to study and go to college, and you still can train, but you need to to build a career. So I, you know, like I started college and all that. And then one year went through, and then now I'm a purple belt, and I'm like, man, I want to compete at Brazilian Nationals again. Where'd you go to college? Nutrition. So, uh, like, how does the education system work in Brazil? Was there a uh, you can like ha- university you big test? Yeah, you, can, you have this big test nas- nationwide that if you do well, you kind of like can apply for uh, federal universities and uh, state universities, mm-hmm. which you don't pay. But you got to study a lot for that. And I wasn't studying that much because I was more focusing on jiu-jitsu. So what I ended up doing is I, I did a uh, private school, which is pretty common. Like there's many programs that you can find that like they almost like lend you money to pay your school. Mm-hmm. So that's mainly how people go to college. And uh, there is a lot of private schools. So I, I joined a private school and started studying nutrition. Mm-hmm. And I still was training pretty hard, winning tournaments uh, locally, but now as a purple belt. And I really wanted to compete at Brazilian Nationals, but I had no money. Like the travels to tra- to travel within Brazil is so expensive, you know. And my family is nothing crazy. My dad works for the government. My mom was retired, you know. Like they didn't have, and I'm I'm pretty expensive to have home. I eat like a lot, <laughs> yeah. so there was not a lot of money left for that. Yeah. So I met this dude at the tournament. Like he was on the same division as I. We didn't fight. He lost to the guy that I was gonna fight next. And on my state, we have like this state rank that a website, this guy's from the website, he makes it like John win four tournaments, he has 400 points. Mm-hmm. John is the number one on the rank in the state. So some people knew because I was doing well, I was winning all the local tournaments, so I was like number one on the rank. So this guy was like, hey man, I have seen you on the website. You, you seem like a really good dude, like you're tough. You're gonna fight this guy next, he, he, ha- he does half guard. And I was like, oh cool, cool, thanks for letting me know. And he was like, I'll add you on Facebook later and let me know how it goes the fight. I ended up winning the whole thing. This tournament was pretty funny because in America, like a lot of people, oh, IBJJF, something like that. Man, this tournament, I was supposed to do my division at 4 p.m. I was doing my division at 11 p.m., the first match. So the tournament went on like almost like to like 1 a.m. or something. It was like super delayed. That's why the guy laughed. The guy I actually have a job, so I gotta go home and like. But let me know how it goes. So they end up winning the tournament. I'm asking. Is Facebook. this because the Brazilians have no sense of time? Dude, it was more like a combination of all bad things. I think <laughs> like people like showing right, up late, showing up late. It was yeah, like yeah. just like a whole chaos. You know, it, it doesn't happen that often. But that tournament was like one of the worst <laughs> that have happened. Yeah, but sometimes, you know, like whenever you compete a lot in the tournaments, you gotta be used to some things. There was a, there was a day that competed. Did Shanji loan them his watch? <laughs> he, he was running the times deal. <laughs> no, dude, it was just like crazy. So this guy ended up 
uh, he has a really high job uh, on the Marines there. Uh, he works in the port, and he was like, hey, man, like, I see you competing a lot here. Why are you not competing in Sao Paulo? Or, like, you can get more more, more views, you know? Like, why are you not competing at the highest level on your belt? And I was like, dude, mainly because I don't have money. And he was like, all right, so what if I pay for your visas, your uh, American, American visa and for your flight to Worlds? And I was like, holy shit. Like, turns out the guy just wanted to help, you know? Like, he has a, awesome. he has, has a job. He can't do the things that I was doing, so he wanted to help. Oh, I see this kid wants it, so I want to help him. And I, that's the only reason I made it to America one day, because this guy, I met at a random tournament, running late, and he met me, and then he wanted to help me. So visa, flights, and then that's how I ended up here in America for the first time. All right, the next one for my recap. Um, Mark Ripto and I have been friends for, geez, since 2008, 2009. Um, I met him officially in 2008 when he came to CrossFit Newport Beach, uh, owned by Melissa McKenzie, to teach his starting strength seminar. So, as you guys know, uh, I had been training up at Athletes Performance, and you know, was doing the drive from Newport Beach to Carson every day, which is only like 29 miles. But in California time, that could either be 30 minutes or three and a half fucking weeks. So. At the end of my career, I got really burned out on driving up there every single day. So I started looking for local gyms. I did a little Google search. All of a sudden, Olympic weightlifting popped up at this little gym up the street. And so I went up and you know, met the owner and started you know, training at this CrossFit gym. Still continued to go out and do different stuff with athletes' performance in other places. But this was like on the days when the traffic was shit, I would just go up there and bang weights. Uh, ended up training there more than I probably should have, but it was close. I liked it, and I definitely liked the attitude of people. Um, I liked the garage gym setting, the grittiness. The t- uh, it was a mix between Zangus and Fight Club, and I dig it. So the owner says, hey, um, you know, this guy Mark Ripto from Starting Strength, he's this kind of quintessential Texan, um, ornery, prickly, full of one-liners, uh, you know, just the... Uh, most one of the most interesting people in the world is coming and he's going to teach a seminar. You should take it. So uh, I took his seminar and uh, while I didn't agree with everything, I agreed with 99%. There's some things that I inherently do. I like to put my thumbs around the bar. I'm not a big thumb over the top. Uh, and you know, uh, the squat technique's a little bit different than what I teach. I teach a little more upright on the chest, but that's because we're challenging posture and position. And Mark and I sat down and, you know, he trains people, that this is their first initial exposure to the barbell. This deal is called starting strength. So he's trying to train beginners, um, and that's his market. And for tens of thousands of people, Mark has been an incredible on-ramp into the life of barbells and strength training. And the people that are first exposed to barbell training through starting strength are dramatically better than the people that weren't. Now, do like I said, do I agree with everything? No. Do I think that... There's a progression out of it, yes. And that's because we train different type of people. Mark's training beginners. I train more intermediate advanced athletes on our training programs. Do we have a beginner training program? Bedrock, 100%. Is it based on a linear progression? Very similar to what Mark Ripto does, 100%. When I launched CrossFit Football, that amateur progression was my version of his starting strength. Four days a week, two squats, one pull, one bench, one press, and a ton of accessory. Very basic, very simple. We use a basic linear progression, adding weight to the bar each time. And it's because I had never seen a program drive adaptation as fast as I had in a beginner than I have with a basic linear progression. 
I just needed it to fit my model a little bit better. So I skinned and changed it. And we have had Bedrock, which has been a phenomenal program for us. And the people that are first exposed to Bedrock at the right time uh, are light years ahead of those of people that weren't. I mean, we've had professional athletes, NFL football players, Olympic gold medalists come out of that program because they did the work early on and they adhered to solid strength conditioning principles. So <clears throat> the very first podcast I ever did, and I'll cut to a few clips of this podcast, which was done in 2008, 2009. Ironically, like I said, it was the very first podcast I ever did, and it wasn't necessarily a podcast. Mark hit me up, uh, Rip hit me up, and I went out to Texas, and he rented a old TV studio, like this PBS thing, and we went in there and we recorded a bunch of content, and he asked me a bunch of questions, not realizing that this form, this mode of communication with podcasting would just explode. He just wanted to have interviews and he interviewed like Kirk Kowalski and a bunch of other individuals. So I was one of the people. And uh, Mark and I had a, have had an incredible rapport ever since. We had him on the podcast. I think it was done remote way back when, like, you know, maybe the first 10 or 20 we ever did back in 2013. So I hit Mark up and said, hey, we need to do a reboot. And he was hemming and hawing, and it's like, ah, oh, let's do it remote. And I'm like, nope, we got to do it in person. The in-person podcast is a thousand times better than a remote podcast, at least for me. Um, so I forced him. He drove down here one day on a Saturday morning. We got up, we did the podcast, and it's solid gold. For those of you guys that haven't listened to it, I suggest you go through the whole thing. But I'm going to start you at about a minute 32 on this clip, and we're going to get into... Rip's assessment on athletic development, athletic performance and success based on genetics. His premise is you can take the worst training program with the best athletic genetic potential and that individual is going to get farther than a guy who's got the perfect training program with the worst genetic potential. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a believer that for certain sports, um, you know, there are definitely outliers where, you know, you could probably say the only way they're not going to get to a gold medal or, a, um, you know, the NFL is if they got hit by a bus when they were 13 and ended up dying. Uh, you know, they were destined to do it. And I met a lot of guys like that, guys that never trained. It could still go in and bench, you know, 500 pounds and jump and run and hadn't done anything. So I was not one of those individuals. I was an individual that had obviously genetic potential but it had to be fostered and developed. And that happened within the confines of the weight room within training and a little bit of, I guess you could say, um, not an inferiority complex, but almost a, a feeling of never being good enough. So, um, growing up was never strong enough, never fast enough, never smart enough, never in good enough shape. I mean, all of these things, I always felt that like the best version of me was around the corner, that if I could just train a little bit harder and run a little bit more and do a little bit more, that best version would come up. And then the minute I got around that corner, he was around another corner. And I was always chasing this individual. And to some day, to some extent, I still do. Um, you know, I was watching uh, The Rock on Joe Rogan and realizing that I met The Rock when I was... 2002, 2001, 2002, um, you know, Tom Canavy was our assistant strength coach at the Eagles, who's, you know, also been on the podcast, which I got to do a reboot with him. And he was one of the assistants at Miami for, you know, when Dwayne Johnson was there. So when uh, the Rock and the you know, wrestlers would come in, he'd always come train in our weight room. And uh, I got a chance to lift weights with him, hung out, he gave me tickets. And 
the rock that you see physically today that I saw in Joe Rogan looks nothing like the rock that I saw many years ago. So the fact that the best version of him is over 50 and he's like every day getting better, better, better is inspiring. You guys can say, you know, he's got private chefs and probably access to, you know, a whole bunch of stuff that, you know, no human has access to other than maybe Joe Rogan. But uh, I do take it that the best version of him is around the corner, which is how I've felt my whole life, that I'm constantly chasing the best version of myself. And so, you know, this year I'm being the best shape of my life. And next year, knowing full well that, you know, that I'll probably never be as strong as I was when I was 26 or 27 or 28 or even 30. But at the end of the day, uh, that doesn't mean that I'm not still striving and pushing for it. So uh, I want you guys to clue into Rip's rant right here and uh, let me know what you think. All throughout athletics, all throughout from peewee football to to, uh, retiring pro, no one seems to be able to tell the difference between a guy whose training was shit, but he succeeded anyway, and a guy whose training was exactly the way it ought to be, but because of a lack of genetic endowment, nobody knows who he is, right? I mean, you walk into a, 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 a locker room full of guys with 32-inch verticals, 32-inch verticals and up, and you are a strength and conditioning coach, and you work with these guys for four years, it looks like you know what the hell you're doing, whether you do or not. It's called the curse of the gifted. Yes. It's, where if it's, you take the world's best athletes, you can have them play a fucking snare drum and they're going to get better. Right. Exactly the case. And the what people do not understand is the strength and conditioning coach didn't build the team. The recruiter built the team. The recruiter is the one that puts the 32-inch verticals in the locker room. Yeah. And this is... If you don't recognize that as a as the primary contributing factor, then you you have no ability to discern what to quit doing and what to start doing because you don't know what's not working. You don't know what the hell's not working. Well, it's not like you because everything looks like it works. Well, it's not like guys. you can take somebody with a twenty inch vertical, and we've talked about the vertical right. jump being a great determining factor right. for power and generating force and right. athleticism. But it's not like you can take somebody that has a twenty inch vertical and train them for four years into a thirty two inch vertical. No, can't be done. Yeah, can't be done. Twenty two, a twenty might go to twenty three, maybe, but probably not. Probably not. And if, but if the guy walks in off the street with a 32, he's just walking around with a 32 inch vertical, we can do something with him. Yeah. And this is why not everybody plays in the NFL. This is all throughout athletics. People want to pretend as though anybody can do high level athletic performance. And that's absolutely not true. Are you talking about the athletes or are you talking about the coaches? I'm talking about the athletes. I'm talking not the athletes know better than that. The athletes, don't they? They know better than that. But the the fans and the coaches and the front office and everybody else is involved in this charade. And it's, it's the same thing as bodybuilding worked off of for 40 years. If you buy this magazine and you do Frank Zane's routine, you're going to look like Frank Zane. No, you're not. Yeah. <laughs> That's not. Frank Zane was born 
Frank Zane. And that's why he looks like Frank Zane. And his training had very little to do with it. And, you know, to the extent that Dorian Yates' training had something to do with his success, it was because the fucking guy was benching sets of six and seven reps with over 500 pounds. Incline benching. Yeah. And, and, and he trained in such a style that, like, I don't believe very many people could. Try. I mean, I no, no, no. He was he was a guy could recover from yeah. a whole bunch of times. But he also uh, wasn't a junk volume guy, you know. Whereas you look no. at like Arnold. I mean, we we had Jay Cutler on the podcast. You know what right. he did? Four sets of twelve. Oh god, that was it. Everything was and four it sets of twelve because he was Jay Cutler. Well, he's Jay Cutler. He also consumed more calories, and uh, I just think that maybe more anabolic receptors. Well, you know. Well, that's not even need to be discussed. I mean, it's, that's just assumed. But if you can recover from all of that work, maybe you'll grow a little bit, but it doesn't work as well as sets of five. And Ronnie and Dorian showed you that. Yeah. You know, that big muscles are based on big strength. Yeah. And that's all there is to it. You can't get strong doing sets of 12. So taking a detour from Power Athlete Radio and steering it right back into some other podcasts that I've done. Um, I had mentioned earlier that I traveled to Montana to go see my old friend Andy Stumpf. As you guys have been followers of Power Athlete Radio, know that Andy's been a fixture at Power Athlete and Power Athlete Radio for a number of years. Um, Really the initial concept of CrossFit football uh, really uh, was born between Andy and I. Uh, I remember when Glassman pitched me on this, I drove down to Coronado. We were sitting outside drinking beers around Andy's, uh, Andy's um, fire pit and worked on the different pieces from not only the workouts, but also uh, the strength training uh, for the intermediate athlete. So the actual intermediate collegiate template across the football was written for Andy. So we had the bedrock amateur progression that collegiate intermediate uh, exposure was Andy's training program. And then obviously the professional one was mine. So Andy was, was the inspiration behind that. And then also the inspiration behind the hardest crossfit workout ever done, which is Kalsu. So, uh, that was kind of came up on a whim with him. Hey, we need a, uh, hero workout. And he threw that out and we kind of brainstormed back and forth. And I was like, we can't post this. He said, post it pussy. So I did. And now we have the hardest crossfit workout in history. And it was a crossfit football workout. So Andy hits me up and says, Hey dude, I want you to come up. It's been years since we've done a podcast. Um, you know, let's come do cleared hot. So when Andy started his podcast, he was relatively small. Now he's gone on Joe Rogan. He's got black rifle coffee as a sponsor and he's fucking in the upper atmospheres of uh, podcasting. So I was stoked one that he got to, uh, that he reached out to do it because, uh, you know, when we both lived in California, and life was more simple. We connected a lot more, but since moving to Texas and having three kids and, you know, him going through all the things that he was going through and working and doing all that, you know, that, that relationship definitely kind of created some distance. So it was nice to go down and sit with an old friend and turn on the mic. And it was as if nothing and no time had passed. I was able to land my shots on him for basically just not fucking staying in touch, but I can't say I'm very good at it either, but we got a chance to sit down on the cleared hot podcast <laughs> and not only talk about, you know, jujitsu and dragon slayer and, you know, uh, a bunch of funny stories. One of which is, uh, the night of Andy's commissioning where we went out and had drinks, almost ended up in a big melee where I had to pull him out of the bathroom after, uh, Andy had, you know, 
talked a little shit. So um, definitely one of the highlights of 2023 was getting a chance to go to Montana. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I got a bunch of conge- congestion, if you didn't know. I cleared a bunch of cedars and oaks and everything up in our property here just because, you know, as you guys are, are maybe know, Texas got hit with a bunch of crazy freezes and storms in the last couple of years. And those freezes and storms have really decimated and just kind of destroyed a bunch of the landscape. So I looked at the Farmer's Almanac this year. This year is kind of going to be serious. So I went through and had to cut uh, a ton of cedars and start kind of grading the property. And I had to set up and start doing some things to like protect us so that things don't get too dicey. Um, so that's kind of what I've been doing. And then I did a huge burn pile on Saturday. So I was out there with bellowing smoke and cedar and all this. And so I got a little bit of congestion. So it's not as if I'm sick. I'm just, man, I'm congested from doing a bunch of work. So running 14 pound chainsaws. I got a uh, cat track loader that I've been running and a mulcher. So I got a, a ton of stuff and then, um, you know, a bunch of toys to a bunch of land clearing. So, um, but enjoy this clip with, uh, with me and Andy. Uh, hopefully I can get him down here to Austin to do one for power at the radio in 2024 and, uh, hopefully connect with him again. And, uh, here's Mr. Andy stuff. It happens, which, uh, <laughs> which at your commissioning, which oh, for sure. well, it might be one of the greatest stories you don't remember. Thank God your boy oh, was in there. the bathroom. Yeah. Oh, I remember. Oh yeah. When I shut the door, he shut the door and people's, uh, perceptions changed rapidly. Yeah. I'm like, welcome to this man's domain. Yeah. So it's uh, me, Andy and three Marines. And I shut the door and I was like, well, are we going to do this? And these guys just backed up against yeah. the wall. And I was like, let's go buddy. Yeah. And uh, oh, I was ready to wreck shop on those motherfuckers. Don't ever fight an offensive lineman in an enclosed space. Well, the only thing worse could have been an elevator yeah uh elevator party would have been fun um but the fact too that not just an office lineman but somebody that's fairly skilled with their hands because he did a bunch of fighting stuff mr andy stump huh funny dude incredibly well-spoken intelligent and very cunning smart dude um you know get to be his level of proficiency as a navy seal and not be a sharp cat so hopefully we'll see him here in 2024 the next one uh, the next podcast, which, you know, was really cool. I got a chance to be a, you know, continuing guest kind of co-host on the everyday point po- or sorry, everyday warrior podcast, uh, with Mike Sorelli and Dr. Kirk Parsley, two of my good friends here in Austin. So, uh, Doc Parsley and I have been friends for a number of years and I count doc is, you know, uh, you know, on your iPhone, when you have favorites, doc's in my favorites. Um, he's, you know, not only my, you know, uh, doctor, but you know, if I bang my elbow and it swells up, doc's going to go drain it. If I need uh, antibiotics or anything, then doc treats it. So, um, you know, anything that needs to be done, uh, doc is usually my lifeline. So when he asked me, Hey, you know, we're going to go do this Mike Sorelli deal. I said, if you're going to be there, I'm there. So ended up creating a great friendship with Mike and doing this everyday warrior podcast, which was on Fridays. And it just exposed me to a new group of guests that I hadn't necessarily had access to. So whenever I do a podcast or whenever you get a chance to go out and do somebody else's podcast, you create a new genealogy. It's just a new circle of individuals to reach out to. And one of the podcasts that we did was with a guy named Dr. Dan Engel. And Dan's a, um, a doc who kind of wrote the book on psychedelics and more importantly, using psychedelics to treat trauma and help with neuroplasticity and anti-aging and just like some really amazing stuff. So... We had him on the podcast, and it turns out he's a buddy of Doc Parsley's. And 
it really sparked this interest in me and not only the effects for, you know, uh, just, you know, uh, basically reversing and increasing neuroplasticity and just making, uh, a more youthful, smarter, better version of yourself. Cause like I said earlier, I have this feeling that the best version of myself is always around the corner. And if I can keep training and keep learning, keep, um, acquiring new skills and doing more things that that next version without them constantly reaching for becomes more attainable. So, um, after we get done with the podcast, like I said, we went out and got some Mexican food. We were sitting around, uh, talking and the idea was spawned about, um, you know, uh, ayahuasca and some of the ayahuasca journeys. And shortly thereafter, a uh, former NFL player and a buddy of Sorelli's reached out about doing a documentary about ayahuasca and he wanted to know if we would take place. So I'm supposed to go here in 2024 down to Costa Rica to this plant-based medicine kind of ayahuasca deal. And uh, needless to say, I'm a little bit apprehensive um, seeing as I've never done anything like that, but also realizing that, you know, is this the piece that's kind of the next journey? And uh, just listening to Dr. Angle and some of the people we had on the podcast talk about their journeys with plant-based medicine and what they've done in terms of expanding their horizons, you know, releasing previous trauma and just becoming a better version of themselves uh, was fascinating to me. And, you know, then, you know, talking to numerous people, um, you know, we had uh, um, John the Stonecutter on the podcast and he has a pretty amazing journey or story about, you know, going down to Peru and doing ayahuasca. And then also George Bryan had another amazing story. So the people that I've been around that have had some really amazing and just positive effects by doing this, um, you know, were kind of inspiring. Now, all of a sudden where the rubber meets the road, these guys want to film a documentary and it's, uh, Mike Sorelli, it's Doc Parsley. Um, it's, uh, Shanji Hibero and myself and another guy. So we're supposed to go down there and, you know, go down to Costa Rica and have this experience and film a documentary associated with whatever comes from it. So I'm excited, also a little apprehensive just because, um, you know, there's also this like level of control, you know, I'm, a, um, you know, I don't drink a ton, uh, like maybe one or two drinks because I don't like to be in a position where I'm not in control. So, uh, you know, doing some psychedelics or doing some things like that where you're just kind of, uh, you know, handing the, <laughs> the car keys or the steering wheel over to some people um, is a little bit nervous for me. So I like to be in control. I like to drive and the, uh, you know, feeling of just handing over the keys and, you know, allowing these people to take you on this journey is both exciting and also a little frightening. So uh, I got to go through and uh, do a little bit more research and, and then decide whether or not, hey, we're going to go make it happen. So uh, hopefully uh, it's a positive experience and I don't come back in 2024 and every single podcast or every single story revolts back to some time where, you know, I was in some ayahuasca journey and this and Hopefully it becomes a, a way for me to become a better person and find that better person that's around the corner. So uh, that one's going to be pretty cool. So we'll cut to a clip and let you see Dr. Dan Angle on the Everyday Warrior podcast. When I was introduced to ayahuasca, it turned my brain on like a Christmas tree. And I had had really severe post-concussive syndrome at that time for years. And I didn't know my adult brain without concussion because I started getting concussions as a little kid. And when my brain got turned on, I knew 
it was part of what was possible this entire time. But I, I, I tried so many different things in concussion recovery. And then with ayahuasca, and I'm not saying ayahuasca would do that with everybody with post-concussive syndrome, but it certainly did with me. So I closed up my practice and I moved down to the jungle and I really wanted to understand the technology. So I lived there for a year. I was in deep apprenticeship with um, a variety of different uh, teachers, ayahuasqueros, just trying to understand the cosmology, the, the lineage, how this works psychologically, neurologically. Um, and funny enough that we're having this kind of conversation, Kirk, because you're kind of leading into it, that that painting behind me is, is was one of those that was kind of like the um, the the culmination, so to speak, of that entire apprenticeship. So when I came back and it was clear that if I was going to be supportive to this movement, then coming back and and being a bridge, so to speak, between the traditional medicine communities and the psychiatric communities was going to be a potential benefit. But it was a really freaking hard re-entry because I had lived at the pace of nature without shoes for like a year. And then I came into you know, our fast-paced culture and it was a bit of a, a culture shock. So what it's helped me do is appreciate that the medicines aren't necessarily here to fix anything. They're really here to help us heal our own trauma, show us our own unique kind of blueprint and um, help us get more clear on what it is that is our work to do. And even the MDMA maps trials will say that Rick, Rick Doblin will say the same thing. It's not so much the medicine is what is the curative factor. The medicine is just accelerating the potential for the therapy to be the curative factor. And so now we have a better kind of container to put these medicines in. It's not just like the medicine is going to do all the work. We have to have a foundation of a therapeutic kind of orientation for this work in the first place. So over these last 15 years, it's been really clear for me the importance of the right use of medicine, but also the right container to put that in, the right preparation and the right integration. Dr. Dan Engel, not only a, a sharp dude, but um, just the level of calmness and like, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm interested. So uh, I'll keep you guys posted. I'll let you know how it goes. That'll be in 2024. Uh, one of the other things I want to hit is the nutrition piece with the fighters as a lever, which has been really fascinating for me. You know, we, over the years, um, you know, we put out nutrition templates and the nutrition templates are really based around leaning, which everybody's interested in how to leaning and just using a little bit of, you know, macronutrient kind of partitioning, but also a little bit of pulling some levers. We're pulling some calories out and really just kind of using a little bit of a zigzag where we're not getting the same amount of calories and just being creative, like putting ourselves in a deficit, giving ourselves a refeed. So the leaning's always been really good. Uh, the bulking does a similar deal in that we have high days and low days and you kind of, you know, eat more food on days you train harder and eat a little less on the days that you don't. Just because the standard way of leaning and bulking where I'm going to be in this caloric deficit, I'm going to stay here and hope to God that it works, um, tends to fail. So for me, I always need a little bit of variety. Uh, you know, if I'm going to be um, in a caloric deficit, you know, I can do low for about three days. On the fourth day, I'm going to need to eat a little bit more, but then I'm going to add a little bit more training. So we've used leaning, we've used bulking, and then my personal favorite, which we call the keto protocol, which isn't a keto protocol at all. It's Marl, it's a, the version of the anabolic diet that I did with Marl de Pasqual. The only reason we called it keto was at the time that we were creating these templates, 
the, the keto diet was real hot. So Luke's like, oh, let's capitalize and jump on that by calling it. But what it really is is carb cycling. What we're doing is we're eating almost a uh, super low-carb diet for Monday through Friday and then doing massive carb refeeds on Saturday and Sunday, sometimes just Saturday, depending on the individual. So when I got into working with uh, the BJJ fighters, one of the first questions we had was on nutrition. So I put Victor initially on the keto uh, carb cycling deal. And I think for him, it ended up being extremely beneficial because he dropped a lot of inflammation. And I think what he was doing was one, he was eating way too many carbs, wasn't eating enough protein. So it taught him his protein requirements. And then also I think the fat and the lack of carbs ended up leaning him out and kind of fixing a lot of some of the inflammation he had uh, in terms of like, you know, some of the acne and some things that kids get. So I think that was extremely beneficial. And then once he kind of got through that on the other side, we went to a back to a much more balanced approach and gave him more carbs just because the amount of training and just work that he was doing, doing it consistently in a low carb environment is tough. So I became uh, less focused on his diet and more just like, Hey, are you getting your protein requirements? So I need you to eat X amount of protein. Here's the protein. And then I need you to kind of backfill with carbs and uh, not go crazy on the fats and, um, his performance has gone up. He's gotten stronger. Uh, body weight hasn't necessarily changed. Uh, the comp isn't the same as it was, but that's to be a little bit expected. So we're going to have to dial that back. Uh, Philippe, who is our young fighter, I did not touch his nutrition just because um, he is a massive carb consumer, like 600, 800,000 grams a day, which for me would fucking put me in a coma. Uh, but just making sure that he's eating enough protein, and, you know, he's eating enough meals throughout the day. But he's a 23, 24-year-old kid who just got into lifting weights. And for that individual, I just needed him to eat and eat consistently. Arash, on the other hand, was, you know, almost 30 and needed to lose some body weight. So I put him on uh, a little bit of modified uh, carb cycling that I do, which I use with some of my private clients. Actually, I've worked it very, very well with my private clients in terms of leaning them out in about 12 weeks. And Rush cut from 292 to 248 in about 12 weeks. And now we've been working on just doing some recomp, which looks like a little bit of bodybuilding, a little bit more protein, and, um, you know, obviously another zone two work. So the nutrition lever has been a fascinating one when you have multiple athletes at different stages in their life with different body compositions, but all requiring similar energy demands. And the way that I started tracking it is uh, we started using different HRV techniques. So... Uh, the whoop to me, um, the whoop bands are probably a little overkill because you got to wear them all the time. You got to wear them when you sleep. You got to wear them 24 hours a day. And it kind of gives you this continuous HRV. So we started using uh, a Morpheus strap where they just put the chest strap on with a little Morpheus thing and they would check the HRV first thing in the morning. And then that way we were kind of monitoring how much training they were getting and really just monitoring their volume and then trying to just match up and make sure that they're eating enough food. As long as the HRV is going up, we got two levers or three levers to really pull. We got the training load, we have the food, and we have the sleep. So as long as they're sleeping at least seven to eight hours a night, Philippe, I think, was sleeping nine or 10, which, goddamn, to be able to go sleep nine or 10 or 11 hours and not wake up multiple times, like only something a 23, 24-year-old kid, if I could bottle that, we would be uber rich, Jacob. Uh, so having those guys in that situation, the other big one we started really pushing is the accessory zone two work, especially on the echoes and the assault bikes where it's just 
you know, concentric. There's no eccentric load, so it's not beating them up. And just making sure that they're getting enough recovery work and then really just using the HRV scales. The hard thing with HRV is there's no standardization. So like I, I think I might have um, talked about it. Um, we were sponsored. We, we reached out and we did a sponsorship and did ads for uh, Eight Sleep. So in preparation, they sent me one of their Eight Sleep systems. And I will tell you this. They're not paying me to say this. It is probably one of the best things I've ever had in my life. That eight sleep mattress cover and the the cooling and the heating and the whole system they've created is better than anything I've ever seen. So much so that uh, I think I'm going to buy it for uh, my son. Uh, maybe not my daughters, but definitely my son. Uh, just because, um, uh, you know, uh, obviously you guys... Maybe you know him, maybe you don't. Um, he's a type 1 diabetic. He was diagnosed two years ago. And so when his blood sugar kind of goes up and down, it gets a little wonky at night. What we'll end up doing is, you know, going in there and sleeping with him so that if it goes off, we can kind of give him some sugar because he's a little kid and he doesn't wake up. So uh, my wife and I will spend nights in his room. So I'm thinking about maybe investing and getting them so it'll be a better sleep because I feel like that when I don't sleep without it, uh, it's not... It's not the the day's not as bright. The apples aren't as crisp. Uh, the birds don't chirp as loud. So if you guys have the means, um, there's discount codes for us for eightsleep.com. Um, you know, if you Google Power Athlete, there's some discount codes out there floating around. But if you guys have the means and you want to get a sleep cycle, and sleep becomes one of those things that you're really excited about and you want to protect it, and you want to get the best version, I cannot recommend the sleep or eight sleep system enough. It's fucking magic. Um, so nutrition, so figuring out, dialing in the chow, figuring out you're eating enough protein. What does that look like based upon energy expenditure, maximizing sleep. So if your sleep is shit, you know, we got Doc Parsley sleep cocktail, which I take, I take magnesium and then I make sure that I'm in bed by 930, uh, no technology, let that eight sleep work its magic. And then when I get up in the morning, I check my HRV and if the HRV is headed in the right direction, then I know what I'm doing is on point. And, you know, I mean, if I lift weights, I train with the guys, I go do jits and this and, you know, train three or four times in a day, all of a sudden my HRV goes down or maybe it sometimes goes up, but I can start fine tuning and dialing this. So, um, I have never been a huge lover of too much technology, too much information, just because I feel like when you give me too many numbers, I don't make any decisions. And so, you know, something like whoop, um, provides so much information about, you know, in, re in real time. I just want to check my HRV once a day. Uh, the eight sleep is great because I wake up and there it gives an HRV number. The problem is, like I said, they're not standardized. So when I wear the whoop, which I wore, uh, I have a Apple watch, I have a eight sleep, and then I've done the Morpheus thing, trying to like get all the HRV so I can start kind of tracking it over to see if there's a match. And uh, it's extremely difficult. So my recommendation is just pick one that you're going to be consistent with. And, uh, you know, is, is HRV bullshit? Uh, I don't think so. Um, I think it's good, not in the daily snapshot, but trends over time. If you can match it up with solid training, if you have athletes that are consistent. And it just allows me with, uh, with my young guys to say, hey, you know, you guys are at a high training load. If the HRV is down a little bit, it's okay because we're going to get a rebound super compensation effect. So... Um, if you need help with your nutrition in 2024, or you're looking to kind of get involved in 2023, I cannot recommend enough hiring a nutrition coach. The coaches, I call them the nutrition ninjas. We have a power athlete are as good as anybody I've ever seen. And they take people on this 
nutrition journey to get them in shape, get them bulk, and they do an incredible job. Uh, it's a level of hand-holding that I'm not very good at, but man, these guys are, are as good as I've, I've come. So if that's the tweak you need to make, and you know what, I just can't get, can't figure out the nutrition, I can't stay consistent, sometimes it helps just to have somebody oversee it and just hand the keys over and let them land the plane. So uh, if you're interested in getting involved in nutrition, I want you to check out the templates and also click on that private coaching and set up a consult and just talk to the coaches and see what's available. More importantly, how we can help you reach your goals. The nutrition piece has been massive for the fighters and all my private clients. So um, the, the takeaway from 2023 was a year of growth. Like I said, it was a tumultuous year. You know, um, you know, Power Athlete has uh, continued to evolve you know, obviously, if you guys tune into the podcast, you know that, you know, Chris ended up parting ways and, you know, going on, taking a new job, which, you know, after a number of years of being our director of training and co-host on the podcast, probably just needed a change in scenery. Uh, and, you know, like I said, we wish him all the best, um, but that doesn't change the outcome or the mission or the path for Power Athlete and what we're doing. And, you know, there's more people behind the scenes, but what you're going to see is more of me, like you're seeing today. And um, I'm excited for what we have in 2024. Also, little known fact, uh, maybe it's not, but it's a year of the dragon. As you know, I was born in the year of the dragon. So this is allegedly a big year for me. At least that's what my wife told me. And that's what all the Instagram posts are telling me. This 2024 is going to be my year, year of the dragon. So as you know, I'm real big into, you know, astrology, numerology, Chinese New Year's and all that, and, you know, as it's popping up on, uh, on social media. But uh, I'm looking forward to some fun podcasts in 2024, um, a bunch of new offerings within the education space and the training and just watching Power Athlete explode in 2024. So for those of you individuals that have been with us, uh, I thank you for your continued support. If this is your first experience at Power Athlete Radio and John Wellborn, I'm going to talk about myself in the third person. Uh, welcome. Uh, we have, I mean, over 10 years, over 700 episodes. This is going to be in the, the mid sevens of content with some of the smartest people to ever walk the planet for strength conditioning and just people in general. Uh, when you go back to the original podcast, just imagine a bunch of dudes huddling around a mic in a noisy office, not in a cool studio. So you got to give us a little bit of a break, but um, I'm excited to do this. And uh, thanks for your continued support. And here's to you in 2024. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Hey there, Power Athlete Nation. Big shout out to all the heavy hitters who stuck around till the final whistle. If you've been soaking in the knowledge bombs and epic tales you've been dropping for free, here's your chance to be a game changer. Swing by klfi.com slash powerathlete and toss a few bucks our way to keep the podcast fueled and firing on all cylinders. That's ko-fi.com forward slash powerathlete. Your support makes a difference. See ya.